Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today on the podcast, we're talking about statewide races across the country. You know, that's where a lot of important legislation happens, and for a decade, Democrats have essentially blown them off. You know, when President Obama was in the White House, Democrats lost more than a thousand legislative seats across the country. They just didn't organize. Republicans out-hustled them, and now they dominate two-thirds of the state legislatures across the country. They've written all kinds of laws about abortion rights and gun rights that Democrats hate. But that's starting to change. Democrats are investing more money and people in these races. And today, we're talking with one of the people leading that statewide effort for Democrats, Jessica Post. She's the executive director for the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. We're talking states today on It's All Political. Jessica, welcome to It's All Political. Thanks so much, Joe. It's great to be here. Uh, We're uh, live at the Chronicle uh, right now. And so your job is to get more Democrats elected to state legislatures around the country, right? So let's let's back up a little bit and see, um, you know, wh- where how difficult your job is because uh, Democrats are in a we're in a serious hole. They lost. Well, everybody was cheering about how great uh, Obama was, uh, at least among Democrats. Uh, the Democrats lost over a thousand legislative seats around the country. Um, how did how did that happen? First of all. Well, some of it was the Republicans put a real focus on electing electing folks to the state legislature. We, as Democrats, we were so focused on the top of the ticket, and we had made a decision that if we elected folks to the Senate, to Congress, to the presidency, it would all just sort of trickle down, right. and that in and that we'd be able to build the fundamentals of the party. The Republicans remember in 2008, we had 60 votes in the United States Senate, we had an Obama presidency, and the Republicans were looking for a path back to power. And they realized that state legislatures were the way back because state legislatures control voting laws. They draw the congressional districts in 37 states and and they figured it out. And so the result was they spent $30 million in the 2010 election. They won all of these state legislative seats. And after that cycle, truly, we were closer to parity. And so let's say we lost 600 seats and then we lost, let's say, another 400 after the Republicans gerrymandered a lot of our Democrats who even survived that election cycle out of their seats in states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, where they drew the lines and lines that now are being challenged in courts in many cases. Right. And that's that's the uh, that's the importance of what you do for Democrats is that the lines are about to be redrawn again in 2020. And whoever controls these state legislatures, these governor's offices, uh, has the key to redrawing the maps. And if you, you know, obviously whoever's in power <laughs> redraws the maps to their best advantage, whatever party is, whether it's Democrats or Republicans. Um, so so right now, as we stand, Democrats control about two thirds, about two thirds of the the state houses in this con- in the country, correct? Republicans control about two thirds of the Republicans state houses. Republicans control it. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and the other effect of this is um, they, uh, whoever uh, controls, uh, there's a, Republicans have been controlled for the last uh, several years. There you see more restrictive abortion laws. You see uh, other laws like that. Um, so why should why should Californians care about this? We live uh, in, a, uh, in a blue island here mm-hmm. for many. The state, the Democrats control all the statewide offices. They control the state legislature. They dominate. They uh, either close to a two thirds majority for the most part. 
Um, why should we care about this here? Well, I think some of it is about American equality and the idea of American equality and about American democracy. The fundamentals of American democracies are built in state legislatures, from voting laws to the district lines. And then some of it's thinking about your fellow American in a different state. Someone who lives in Alabama could be, or even my home state of Missouri, could get married on Saturday and be fired from their job on Monday if they married a person of the same sex. And so the reality is, the uh, whether it's reproductive choice, whether it's minimum wage, or whether it's LGBTQ equality, all of those laws are made in the states. And if you think about the future of the United States, about American innovation, having these great disparities between people's rights and lives um, in states is significant. And truly, after the retirement of Justice Kennedy, this has become even more important because all of these laws are going to get pushed down to the states. So when we took back the Washington State Senate in 2017, with that blue, with that final brick in the blue wall on the West Coast, we made sure that a woman's right to choose was in state law in the state of Washington. And that's something that we could do with more state legislatures. We really could advance social progress in these states, especially when we know the federal government isn't going to act on that. And they're certainly not going to act on gun control and other things that maybe folks in California hold dear. And you've already seen some of the uh, the fruits of your labor. Uh, Virginia, as we as you know, several months ago, uh, flipped um, and, and they actually um, they flipped from Republican to Democrat. And now they they just uh, re, they became the thirty second state to expand Medicaid. That would not have been possible if you know unless there was a concerted effort to flip that seat. That let state uh, legislature. Yeah, the fifteen additional seats began in Virginia. And also remember, and maybe it'll give your listeners hope that was on a gerrymandered map. So there were mm-hmm. the chief architect of Republican gerrymandering lives in Richmond, Virginia, mm. and so we picked up. 15 seats, and now 400,000 Virginians have health care. That's really exciting. So what is the scope of your task at this point? What, how many seats do Republicans control natu- nationally at this point? What's, what's the disadvantages? Yeah, Republicans have, I think, about, a th- they continue to have about 1,500 seats on us. But I think the thing that we look at is where can we affect chamber control? Mm-hmm. So it's in some ways better than folks might expect. We're only 17 seats away from flipping eight state senates across the country. And that's stuff like you got like one seat to flip Colorado. Yeah. Uh, you know, a couple, that's what you're talking about when you say 17 seats spread over all these states. Yeah, like we're one seat away from flipping the Colorado State Senate. And then we would have Democrats controlling all branches of government in Colorado if we flip that state Senate. In Maine, we're only one seat away from flipping the state Senate as well. Same thing in Minnesota. And then in a place like Wisconsin, which may surprise your listeners, we're only two seats away from flipping the state Senate. And having a Democratic wall in that Republican trifecta of government would stop Scott Walker from doing some of the crazy things he's been trying to do as governor. Mm -hmm. And it would certainly stop the Republicans in the Wisconsin Assembly from moving forward. So we're closer than I think people think. And so by the end in your... uh in your rosy scenario in November, where could that stand? Where could the disadvantage stand uh, from your perspective? What, where could the Republican advantage stand over you? Well, I think we could pick up between eight and ten chambers. You know, we outline. And the, then you would, they would, how many would you control, and how many would? Uh, the oh, uh, state legislatures yeah. they would control. Yeah. I think we could get up to forty-four chambers, and then the Repu- there's ninety-nine partisan chambers. So then the Republicans would have the balance of that. Okay. So, so they'd what, have 45. So we'd be closer to parity. Yeah. You're, you're, um, it seems like there's much more attention on the, uh, for all the reasons we just mentioned, on uh, state legislatures. 
your budget, you're telling me as we were coming up here in the elevator, <laughs> yes. has, has, uh, has doubled. I mean, you to, from you had $16 million in your budget, wasn't yeah, it? And now in it's 16. Doubled in 16. And now this next year, it will be? We'll be close to $35 million. And so we're the largest spender in the state legislative space uh, that has an impact across the country. So <clears throat> tell me about uh, what are some of the success stories you've had so far? I mean, it's been incredible since 2017. Obviously, Democrats were really feeling on the mat. And we have now flipped 44 seats from red to blue Mm -hmm. in the elections since Trump was elected. So 2017, 2018, we flipped the Washington State Senate from red to blue by flipping one seat with a woman named Monica Dingra, who's an incredible leader, um, Indian American woman in the Seattle suburbs. We also flipped uh, Kevin Cav- a, a seat in New Hampshire with a guy named Kevin Cavanaugh, who is a uh, IBW member and a teacher and coach. Hmm. And then if you think about it, I know you had Delegate Danica Rome on Danica your program. Rome, first uh, transgender person to be elected to a state legislature so, in this country. In this country. So that is certainly an incredible win there. Um, there are other folks out there trying to follow in our footsteps, like Jerry Cannon in New Hampshire. So I think we'll see a uh, – we've certainly seen an increase in the diversity of legislatures. If you think about Virginia, that's a state that was historically white, male, and affluent. The legislators aren't well compensated. It, you know, it looked like a country club in there. Right. And then now you send 15 new diverse people, a number of young Danica's women of color. Me they make like 17 grand a year. So it's it's yeah. hard to recruit candidates, I imagine, for, this, for a lot of these jobs. And California does a – a full-time, full-time job. Yeah. Um, what is the the? Um, tell me about some of the folks you're you're recruiting and and who they are. I noticed uh, from your um, uh, on your on your website you list all your candidates. A lot of women, mm-hmm. not a lot of men of color. What what's the what's the challenge there? Well, I think there is an increase in in men of color running. Um, we Vin Gopal, for example, won, and Troy Singleton were two races where we picked up seats in New Jersey. Two men of color. Um, you know, obviously, women after Trump and after the Women's March, there was an upsurge of women wanting to run and a, a lot of women of color running. So we're trying to do our best to highlight the diverse array of candidates that are running across the country. You know, you articulated exactly the problem. In many of these state legislatures, you make $17,000 a year. Right. You have to have another job. But yet, we have the most candidates running since 1982 for state legislature as Democrats. And how many are you able to, uh, in terms of percentages of races, are you able to cover? I mean, and, and mm-hmm. it's, it was you weren't covering a lot. Of, there are a lot of races going unchallenged. How many are unchallenged now? I think the percentage is lower than ever. You know, we track this state by state. Yeah. And so in states like Arizona and uh, Iowa and in Maine, we've covered 100% of the slate. In New Hampshire, for example, we have 383 folks running for the House out of 400. Mm-hmm. And there's 400 state reps in the New Hampshire State House, if you can believe it, in that small right. state. Yeah. So I think that, um, I don't know that we have the, we certainly eventually will release the overall percentages that co- that's covered, but it's um, we're certainly at a high watermark of legislators running. So are there any issues that are resonating now that, that haven't in the past? What, what are... What's what's moving these candidates and what's in these races? What's what's moving the dial for you guys? Well, I think after we flipped 44 seats, we looked at all of them and said, well, what were the commonalities? And it was really people talking about bread and butter issues in a state like Minnesota. We talked about access to rural hospitals mm-hmm. and in a state like Kentucky, where we flipped the reddest seat so far, a seat that went 70 percent for Trump with a woman named Linda Belcher. She talked a lot about crumbling roads and bridges. And if you think about it, if you're driving to work on an unsafe road, right. you're not thinking about Trump's tweets and you're certainly not thinking thinking about that. So talking about Trump is not a winning issue. 
uh, for this, uh, for for your at, at your level of candidates, correct? Well, I, yeah, I think he's the 800-pound gorilla, and everyone's sort of now judged in contrast to Trump. But I'll tell you, even in Washington State, um, where in the Moncadingra district, this is a district where Secretary Clinton received more votes than President Obama, mm-hmm. so a district that's trending the right way that specifically dislikes President Trump. We tried to connect the Republican candidate that was running against her and just said that she had praised Trump on Twitter, and it, it wasn't enough. They needed The voters needed to see, what are you going to do for me to help with my schools, to help with traffic? And also, why is this Republican really a Trump Republican? I know that she praised him, but how is she like him? So we had to establish uh, a commonality of issues that and a commonality of funding streams that mm-hmm. these two Republicans had in common. You know, I would... Uh, was it last night? Two nights ago now, here in San Francisco, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came into town for a couple of fundraisers. I wrote about her uh, being at one of them. Um, two things she didn't mention um, during her talk there. By the way, wildly, uh, I haven't seen a, an audience that electric in a long time. Um, she didn't mention Trump, not once, by name at least. And she didn't mention that she was a democratic socialist. Of course, everybody else in the room mentioned it uh, throughout the evening because it was who sponsored it. But, um, but yet she talked about, uh, took a very uh, strong progressive message here. Now, granted, this is San Francisco, and she's playing to the audience. Do you find candidates who do that, are they, are they being more successful uh, by and large or or? or What's your experience been so far at the state level? Well, uh, of course, we have candidates running in 6,000 some districts across the country. So it's tough to to make it a universal rule. But I do think that the candidates that really resonate and talk in bold strokes about the everyday lives of folks in their districts are – are the people that are breaking through Mm -hmm. and the people that are talking about ambitious solutions to problems. In many cases, people aren't wondering how are you going to get to – free uh, community college. They just want that to be a goal and they would like that you're on your way there. So that's certain things like that. And of course, um, other bold moves like increasing the minimum wage have really resonated, I think, with voters uh, in the special elections. Minimum wage. Uh, so when you say that they, they want to hear about an outline or your, that's your sort of um, your aspirational goal to get to free college, but they don't want to they don't want to uh, like a 10 point policy plan. No, I, I think it's much more about talking about where we're trying to get as Americans or as, as folks in a specific state, and then also giving voice to the specific concerns and problems that everyone in the community feels, like the pain points, whether it's traffic, like we talked about, uh, access to rural health care is in decline, and that's something that's, yeah. you know, that was a commonality, of course, also in the Doug Jones race, not at our level of the ballot, right, right. but cl- the closing of rural hospitals is something that's really putting a squeeze on a, a lot of Americans in the districts that we're running in. Uh, quality of life issues like schools in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, public schools used to be the way that folks in Kentucky could advance, and some of the promise of public education is in decline. And I think that if a a local person wasn't there to say to the pollster, hey, like here are the actual things people in my community are concerned about, let's make sure that we measure these messages instead of just putting generalized poll-tested stuff in the lid. Um, it, I think our candidates wouldn't resonate as much. It's really that cycle of door knocking, listening to the concern that the, the person has on the door, and then identifying with that and then repeating it back in the paid communication. What has been the effect of uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign down to the statewide level? 
Well, I mean, and, we, and, the, and the stuff that he was talking about, and the way he was talking about it, and the way he was fundraising was there. Is that does that resonate with, at, at your level? Yeah, I th- you know, like I think there are a lot of folks that endorse Bernie that got involved in the Bernie campaign that are now running for the legislature. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd love to see um, Senator Sanders be a lot more active with those candidates mm-hmm. in terms of fundraising, lifting them up, providing endorsements. We'd love to see that from Senator Sanders because certainly he inspired a lot of people to run and a lot of people to run with those sorts of ambitious free community college kinds of goals so you'd like him to step up more with endorsements and such absolutely yeah Yeah, we'd love to and we've seen this already from folks like president obama who recently endorsed our candidates my next question what what is that what does it matter with what obama says that for it for a statewide legislature race uh he he endorsed here in california endorsed someone who uh, buffy wicks who's running in a east Mm -hmm. bay uh, assembly seat um, now, he has a personal connection to her. Mm-hmm. She was the statewide coordinator for him in uh, 2008 and such. But, I mean, doesn't seem like kind of, uh, I don't know, like a UFO if uh, Obama endorses you, <laughs> like, with all due respect yeah. to our former president. I mean, to be honest, a, a lot of what matters is is what it's communicated, that that President Obama, as the leader of the party, sees that state legislatures are important from the standpoint of redistricting, but also in a state like California from the standpoint of he was a state legislator and he understands that the people that are you know shaping public policy are truly important even as in a state like California where we have a tremendous blue wave of legislators already yes. to a state like Iowa where he's endorsed uh, Jennifer Confirst and Kristen Sunday for state legislature these are people who will not draw the lines but uh, because of Iowa's nonpartisan redistricting plan but will vote on important things like Medicaid mm-hmm. uh, collective bargaining schools and President Obama saying those things are important and does we, we touched on this a little bit earlier but does does Trump when he goes on the road and he usually doesn't dip down to the state legislature level but does he help or hurt if when he goes on the road for someone against your opponents yeah, I mean, I think it's it's hard to say, right? Because I think he goes in and he just sits in the airplane hangar and 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 you know does his speech. So I I don't know how impactful that is. I mean, I think that his travel is more strategically scheduled than maybe we know. Yeah. You know, he went into Minnesota at the end of 2016. We lost the Minnesota State Senate at the end of 2016 because the ground was shifting. But I, it's it's hard to tell. I mean, Trump is like I said earlier, the 800 pound gorilla in in the room. Um, at all times, but I think our candidates, as they're able to present integrity, talk about real solutions, are really able to sort of combat that by through sort of their actions as much as their words. The at the House level, the Democrats, led by uh, uh, Minority Leader Pelosi here, have a, a slogan called "A Better Way," mm-hmm. which has been much mocked. Um, does that? what's the Democrats' message at the statewide level? Is there one or is it because, you know, you're dealing 6,000 races, it's hard to have a commonality of theme and and should you have one? Well, I mean, I think the truth is with the national news cycle, the message frame that's put out by the U.S. Senate and by, so by the uh, Senator Schumer's of the world and by the Leader Pelosi's is the message, is sort of the generalized Democratic national brand um, sort of no matter what. And so we live um, within the context of that brand. And then within states, many of our state legislators release a blueprint for the state. Uh, in Oregon, they called it the Fair Shot Agenda, where they talked about raising the minimum wage, subsidizing college for Americans, and then also making sure there are other 
pieces of fairness in terms of uh, freedom from discrimination in the workplace, um, just making sure that people can go to work and have a fair shot to succeed despite some of the other barriers that might be out there. In Nevada, they called it the blueprint, and they released that to say, here's what Nevada Democrats do. I think we try to break through in the in-state media with those messages, and then we, we when we knock on the voters' door, which is still a primary means of communication, yeah. at our level of ballot, try to reverberate that. Um, but it's tough for us to get that on some of the national press hubs right. uh, because it's not the the sort of same as what you see out of. What, what's it, something that we talk about here in California that doesn't resonate in Alabama or Tennessee and the races here there? Well, I think the problems are different, right? Yeah. I mean, in a state like Tennessee, you may not have a problem with water and drought and water reclamation in the same way that you might here in California. In Tennessee, the access to rural health care, I think, is a much larger issue. In the states that haven't expanded Medicaid, like Alabama, that's an immediate issue. Whereas in California, um, because of your statewide health care program, a lot more folks are able to be supported. So mm-hmm. I think those are some key differences. How about climate change? Is that is that something people talk about at the statewide level? I think it, yeah. In, I think in it the varies. south or in the Midwest? I think it varies from state to state. I mean, yeah. certainly I think people are concerned about climate. It's not the sort of um, flooding, like the coastal floodplain concerns that maybe are in other places, but it's definitely a, a top of mind concern for drought, for farmers, and some of the global climate disruption that's happened. It really has some major impacts on um, the sort of bread belt of mm-hmm. America. So you, you've got this, uh, you're doubling your budget. What are you doing with that money uh, for this cycle? Well, we've, able, we've been able to provide more investments than ever in special elections, and we've invested in early infrastructure. Uh, one example uh, in terms of us developing campaign capacity in Iowa, we work to support uh, Phil Miller, who's a veterinarian who won a special election in Iowa. His campaign manager, Caroline Clausen, was ready to leave Iowa. She was being courted because she had won this big special election or helped do that. And the uh, Iowa House leader said, can you help fund her salary uh, so she can stay and set up the campaigns around the state, drive around Iowa, make sure the candidates have websites? So we made that early investment. And that's part of what's led to this record candidate recruitment we're seeing across the country is having someone there to make sure the paperwork was filled out, the petitions taken out for all of these new first-time candidates. So it's a lot of blocking and tackling. That sounds like just basic stuff. Was that just being blown off for a decade? Well, I mean, I think that um, these many of the these state remember that f- many of these state based organizations were not being well funded or resourced, yeah. and when we were able to come to the table and do some of the basics, those are the things that actually yeah. lead to big numbers, like the most candidates since 1982. Yeah. We also have been able to spend big in special elections. You know, we spent uh, 750 thousand to help elect Monica Dengra up in Washington, and that had huge public policy impacts automatic voter registration, and, um, you know, they still in many states, conversion therapy, the controversial practice of mm-hmm. LGBTQ conversion therapy is still legal, and they banned it up in Washington after we flipped the chamber. So big, big impacts. And then we've also been able to invest in developing digital programs in states, investing to make sure field organizers got on the ground earlier to ensure our candidates are out door knocking and that voters are hearing face-to-face, um, clear messages about our candidates. Okay, over the next, uh, we uh, at this when we're recording this, there's, a, what, 97 days till, mm-hmm. uh, till the midterm elections. Um, give us two races, one or two races, that we should be watching that are, that are you, you think are like either bellwethers or, or, or something that could tell the story of the midterms. 
Mr. Worley? Because we're going to be bored here in California. We already know what's going to happen. <laughs> I think you have some big races, we right, do. in we California. Do, yeah, it's a, you know, come on. Um, so there are there are obviously key California Assembly races. So I don't. I want to let our friends in the California Assembly and Senate know that right now. But in <laughs> covering your tracks, go ahead. <laughs> but in in Arizona, there's a woman named Christine Marsh who is the Arizona State Teacher of the Year who's running for the state senate. So that's a key one. The Christine big, Marsh. Big teacher strikes down there. That you, did you recruit her, recruit her off the picket line? So she was ready to run before the teacher strikes. Yeah. I mean, remember, the teacher strikes came out of teachers being very upset with working conditions in these states that have, have underfunded public education because of the Republican governance of their states. And Arizona but, being seen as a state that, that's very flippable at the, uh, at the macro level for Democrats. Exactly. Potentially. Maybe a little early. Yeah, I do think a lot of that campaign infrastructure that's in there for Kirsten Cinema for the U.S. Senate race, that's in there for the congressional races, and that one of the things we had to make sure of is let's make sure that we're out knocking doors, persuading voters, and that's what Christine Marsh is doing, and a dream candidate, a teacher of the year. So that's a big one. Um, another big one is um, Jesse Danielson up in Colorado for the Colorado State Senate. You know, we're only one seat away from flipping the Colorado State Senate. Uh, Jesse Danielson is uh, a longtime multi-generational Coloradan. She has an incredible uh, vo- incredible history on voting rights. She really fought uh, as an advocate for that, fought for women and reproductive choice in her in her work. And so those are where two. Where in Colorado is she running? Um, she's running in the in sort of the Denver suburbs Denver area. Suburbs, okay. Yeah. And then Christine Marsh is in the Phoenix suburbs as well. All right. So those are two big ones to watch. All right. Well, Jessica, thanks so much for being on all, It's All Political. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Joe. I really appreciate being here. I'd like to thank Jessica Post for being here today, and I'd like to thank King Kaufman for producing this episode. The King! Yes, this podcast was produced by royalty. And here's welcome news. Our podcast is now available on Stitcher. So welcome all you Stitch heads who found us. And remember, no matter what state you live in, whether it's California or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or the perpetual state of confusion, it's all political. (laughs) 